Wandering through the great plains of life Things move fast, sometimes a blur Don't you let this bumpy road Separate you from the herd and When you think the day is done The sun is getting low We're all looking for something rare The great white buffalo The great white buffalo Podcast with Ben Mayfield So what episode number am I? This will be tomorrow's episode. No, I meant number-wise. So, 96. You've so. done 95 of these already? Yeah, bro. And we're our numbers are really good. People don't give us, I don't think, enough credit for it. But. That's a little editing thing there. I like that. I thought that was like, <laughs> welcome Chuck Bell. And then it's like, <laughs> I just got the one clap. I didn't even get a full clap. That's all I got, Ben? It's like... <laughs> That's all I can do for you. Is I can't do a multiple class for you. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Great White Buffalo Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mayfield. And ladies and gentlemen, this is an incredible episode. And I know I say that for every episode, but this one's truly incredible. I've been trying to get back to our roots here at GWB and interview some people who I feel like have lived extraordinary, interesting unique lives and we've had a couple once the past episodes and we're back into it without further ado mr chuck bell how are you chuck hey ben thanks for having me i'm good i'm good this morning i'm really excited to have you and i I was thinking about this yesterday i don't think i know a single other chuck i know some charles Hmm. but none of them go by chuck have you ever met another chuck besides chuck norris I have. I've met a few of them. What's interesting about my name, though, Ben, is I'm William Charles, but my mom named me Chuck because she said she always wanted a boy named Chuck, and then she named me William Charles. (laughs) And then she called me Chuck, which really (laughs) confused a lot of people. So technically, I'm not really a Chuck. I'm a Charles. I think most Chucks are probably Charles. Yeah, like a little nickname. But I, th- I just thought that was really cool because I was like, Man, I don't know a lot of Chucks. But, it's one yeah. of those weird names that you say it over and over again and it starts sounding really weird. And also as a little kid, you couldn't do that name song. You weren't allowed to do that. So it was like in kindergarten, she would be like, let's right. learn everybody's name. And then it came to my name and they're like, let's do something else. <laughs> duck. Say yes. duck and nothing yes. else. Yes. Truck. Well, also we're recording this. It may not be released on this day, but we're recording this on... May the 4th be with you. Yes, we are. So I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And I don't know if anybody eh? can tell. No, I can't see it in this one. Oh, behind you, there's some Star Wars Funko Pops, some Star Wars stuff. Are you a Star Wars fan at all? Yes. He's, okay. So my shirt. Where does Empire shirt? This is getting a little risque for me to lift up my shirt here. It does the, say. The fans need this. Oh, the force is strong in my family. Yes, let's go. Wait, wait. Uh, oh, you got those socks. Yep. Yes, may the force be with you. Yep. I got my uh, the dark side is strong. Oh, I see that. Okay. The, the yeah. emperor socks on. I had to fight. Okay. I had to fight my kids for the socks because actually Lucy and Lucy's more of a Star Wars buff than Blakely is, but we have um, quite a few Star Wars stuff in our family, and one of those is Star Wars socks. And the girls gave me. <laughs> Those and I have one that has just Darth Vader on it. So nice. Yeah, I, I'm probably more of a. Even though I I love the rebellion, I I think I'm probably a little bit more on the. Well, the Empire. 
I guess I'm kind of a loose cannon with all of it. You know, it's like <laughs> I love I I love the the villains, the characters that are any of the um the uh, Darth Maul. Just I was infatuated with him when I first saw him. Mm-hmm. I I just couldn't couldn't get enough of him. Uh, but my young nephews, when they were I don't know four or five years old, they called me Chuck Fett. Oh, nice. And I had a I had a, a Yoda lightsaber that I would fight them with all the time, so they called me Chucko Fed. But I think it's something about just the... I love TIE Interceptors. I think they're incredible. Like, anytime they're on the screen, I'm like... <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge fan of TIE Bombers. I mean, any TIE Fighters type stuff. I, I the think Death their ships Star? are so cool. You know, the Death Star, it's... it's Not as cool? I am a Chase credit card holder, and on my credit card, I do have the Death Star and Darth Vader. Oh, so nice. it's because those rebellions keep blowing up the Death Star. And keep building more I keep more having money. to give my interest rate goes to building more <laughs> Death Stars. So what if the Chase credit card company was actually building their own Death Star? And we didn't even know it because it was in secret. I do. I mean, I love the fact that this universe is so huge and George Lucas, uh, it's just his imagination. And then people, you know, have obviously added stuff to it and the lore and the depth to it. Because even like Mandalorian, when it came out on Disney+, Plus, the TV show, it reached, I would say, a lot of non-Star Wars fans too. With Baby Yoda was a big deal and it was during the pandemic. And it was kind of that show that kind of like, all right, we'll watch this. So I, just, I think Star Wars is just such a cool universe that allows people's imaginations just to go wild oh yeah and the mixture of the star wars universe is almost getting as in-depth as the marvel universe so for example lucy and i are are huge my daughter lucy we're huge um soundtrack buffs love listening to soundtracks to the point that lucy will listen to those almost exclusively and can pick out in movies where these obscure little uh, shorts are made or, or mock-ups of, of various pieces of music that are just you know one-offs from the main theme. We were watching Andor, I think it's episode three or four, when they're walking through... I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody. Spoiler alert. Pause or fast forward if you don't want to know about this. They're walking through um, the downtown area of... Uh, what is that? Coruscant that they're on? Yeah, yeah. I keep going. Want to call it croissant? It's not a croissant. <laughs> it's not a croissant. Delicious though. <laughs> delicious. Very delicious. <laughs> and it's kind of like a Main Street USA type scene. And it's where he's walking towards the large mountain. Have you seen Andor? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's walking towards the mountain, and she's like, "Don't touch the mountain." Yeah, it's like a, like an old artifact. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the ti- It's the ho- It's the highest point of the uh, planet. Yeah. And walking towards it was this Andor or was this? But wait, maybe it wasn't Andor. Yeah, it was Andor. It was Andor. Is it Andor? Yeah, it's okay. Andor. So walking towards it, and in the background, in the music that's playing like Main Street, you hear bum 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 dun 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 which is the John Williams theme that they wrote specifically for the new Star Wars. It's that new theme, but it's played like a Main Street. Like they're walking, so the characters oh, in Andor yeah. are hearing the theme that John Williams wrote. Isn't it like a little side band too playing it? I don't know if there's a side band playing it, but uh, that, that blows my mind because yeah. here 
we are watching that, listening to a theme that was from another Star Wars that's played as background music that's in the scene of them walking through the main part of that area. Yeah, blew my mind. Yeah, there was a. There's also with the show Andor, and this is I think I watched this YouTube channel that was kind of broke it down. In fact, if you haven't already, subscribe to our YouTube channel at Grow Up Buffalo Podcast. Subscribe, hit the bell for notifications. Hit the bell. I got that. Chuck Bell. Um, for notifications. But he was talking about, like, I want to say it was Andor, the, the the credit scene would change each episode, and they would add a different, like, tone to it. Yep. Of, like, if it was going to be, a, like, a somber or, or high adventure. And I just thought it was cool how they used music to, to really uh, explain the emotion behind the scene or the episode. It's like, man, Star Wars is getting, like, next level. Yep, and somebody on the podcast that might be listening might be going, it's not Andor, and it's not. It's actually Mandalorian. Is it Mandalorian? Yes, because it was the scientist along with the girl that was... Oh, um, yeah, the, um, the mean scientist, the kind of tricky Yes, one. it was that scene where they were walking through the downtown area. Which is the episode that was kind of a waste of an episode. That was... You You really had to love the backstory if you were really going to watch that one. Mm-hmm. Blakely completely lost interest by episode two or three because there was so much of the building of what the new empire was as opposed yeah. to the, the old. the new republic. New, excuse yeah. me, the new republic. But moving from one to the other and showing how they wanted everybody to assimilate into this new way of life. Right. And they had to show those in-depth stories in order to get to the point where the story made sense at the end. Yeah, because it's also showing between 7, 8, and 9, those three episodes of Force Awakens, uh, The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker, it's all pre-before those three movies. And the New Republic, if you remember, The Force Awakens gets blown up, the five, like, government, whatever. And they're trying to show how weak the New Republic was, and that's how the First Order was able to get started and how they got a footing. And so you're starting to see that in Mandalore or Mandalorian with Moth Gideon and the spoiler alert, the Dark Council yep. that he meets with and on the holograms and then the New Republic like not being able to go help send help for the outer rim and stuff like that. So it's just showing the weak New Republic government, which I thought was also cool. because uh, George Lucas did that with the first three prequels was put more government, more like with the Senate and the, you know, the chancellor and, and the politics. I thought that was kind of interesting because politics do play into corruption and taking power and greed and all that. And it, it, it's fascinating. If you don't watch Star Wars and you're listening right now, maybe give it a try. Watch it all. Yeah. Especially if you like politics. Yeah. <laughs> the most recent ones, you should watch yeah. it because it yeah. is all political. Yeah, it is, it is pretty political. And not political in the sense of like, at least I don't think it's political in the sense of like t- our politics of the world. It's no. all galactic politics. Galactic politics and understanding that there is oppression in the world and the universe. And there's always people who are going to fight that. Uh, and there's always um, people who are trying to do good mm-hmm. uh, that sometimes they get overlooked. I'm just always amazed at how large the Senate actually is. When you look at, oh, when you yeah. look at like our government, and you think of just the United States. Sometimes I think that's a very large government, and then you look at something that is the world of Star Wars and the Senate, and how 
tall that must be. I would love to see like a, a building, like an Empire State Building or something, in comparison to how deep that Senate chamber is. Yeah. Because when they pull those little pods out, they look like tiny in the yeah. center compared to all of the ones that are on the sides. I mean, it's like, it's, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. There's to, tons of to, to put an idea of how large the universe is or the galaxy or whatever is yeah. that each person represents another planet is insane. And imagine trying to get like laws passed on a galactic level when we have a hard time doing it on the U.S. level. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, but my, you know, doesn't want to do this. It's like, what? Well, how in the world would you ever know everybody's policy? I mean, it's so large that there's no way that... Yeah. I, I, can, I can't see how there would be any balance whatsoever, which I think that's the reason that the... that the Republic... Uh, I'm sorry, the First Order was so uh, dominating with everything that they did. They were like, we're just going to take over by aggress- aggressiveness mm-hmm. and you know, completely just eradicate anybody who is not on the same line. That's the only way they could rule the whole, yeah. whole galaxy, the whole universe. So God, we are probably man. way off topic. Yeah, yeah, you know, but I love it, though. It is May the 4th. It is organic conversation, and it's a little bit of who I am. So I'm not going to pander to whatever topic... Y'all want to hear? I want to talk about the topics I want to hear and talk about. And you love me, and so hopefully you love it too. And I feel like I kind of went down a rabbit hole that I uh, was was very novice. I, I'm a novice compared to you. I oh. grew I grew up in the '70s, so it was like I I saw the first Star Wars in the theater, remembering going to see that and not knowing what to. You expect. went to the very first Star Wars movie. I did. <laughs> I did. I did. Not knowing like, all right, what is this thing? There were three movies that I went into that I had no idea what they were back when I was younger. One was Star Wars. Right. The second was Clash of the Titans, like the original. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea what to expect and loved that movie. Loved it. Uh, and the third one was Indiana Jones. I oh, had no uh, idea yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had no idea what that movie was. My sister just said, hey, I'm going to the movies. Do you want to go with me? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go. And uh, my sister took two, my other two sisters, and uh, myself. And did you go? That's Han Solo. <laughs> like, I don't think I made the connection back then. Yeah. I think because I saw every character as an individual character, so I didn't realize Han Solo. Um, and uh, I didn't realize Harrison Ford played so many characters. You know, right. it was like, yeah, I was, I was the same way too as a kid. I wouldn't be like, oh, that guy. I'm not IMDb in every yeah. movie that I see. If Indiana Jones had carried a blaster, I would have been like, that's, wait a second, that's Han, or if Han Solo had carried a whip, it would have been like, I was like, ah, there's the Then it would have made sense, but I think when I was much younger, I didn't make the connection of this character was played by an actor that also played this character, because I so lived in the world and the fantasy of each one of those, it was just kind of mind-blowing. It's like discovering that you know pickles come from cucumbers. It's like <laughs> when you figure that out, it's like it changes your life. Maybe <laughs> I held off long enough to not really put multiple actors into multiple movies to realize that they messed up. It's like characters who are so iconic. It's like you see them in a movie, but you still want to keep them in that same character that yeah, you saw yeah. before. I've done that. I've done that a couple of times where you have an actor that's just like icon, like Pierce Brosnan. To me, was my 007. Mm. That's who I watched growing up as a kid, and so every time I see him in something else, like he was in the the Black Adam movie as Doctor. Uh, oh gosh, 
why can't I think of his name? Doctor Not Strange. Oh my gosh. It's I can't remember his name. But anyways, he was in that movie and I'm like, Oh, it's 007. That's cool. What's 007 doing in this movie? Um and and he's in there and he's fantastic. But I wanted to ask you some questions. You okay. ready? Now to the real stuff. Down to the real stuff. If you don't know about Chuck Bell, this is what I know. Musically gifted, talented, one-of-a-kind artist, trailblazer of the music world. I don't know if some of those titles, if you want more or less, but I feel like those are some good titles. And good. and with that, Dr. Fate, that's his name. Sorry for the movie. Took me a second. But with that is where did you learn to like the appreciation of music? Was it a kid? Did you in the fourth grade get the recorder? You know, like play the recorders. Like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. Let me try something else. Like, <laughs> like, and what was your like your main instrument? Because I know you play like seven different instruments. So, I think it's interesting because I don't play any instruments. I've tried, I'm not very good at it, and I think some of that comes from when we're younger, just like pouring into it, developing into it. So I want to know a little bit of the origin story. Sure. My father uh, used to uh, build and repair player pianos. You know, the old upright pianos that got the pumps at the bottom and you pump your yeah. pump the with your feet and the rolls play and the piano keys go down by themselves. <laughs> we had quite a few of those in our house. And we had piano rolls that we would stick in there and we would play. And my sisters and I would sit down at the piano and put our fingers on the piano and keys would go up and down and we would memorize where the keys were. And so my sisters would take from a certain note up and then I would take from the certain note down and we learned to play songs that way. I was maybe four or five. So just sitting at the piano like that kind of intrigued me. It might've been more of the mechanics of the player piano at the time that really were fascinating to me. Uh, my parents so you, just saw... You learned to play with, with your two sisters, the three of you? Yeah, so they knew great <laughs> songs from the right hands, and what I knew was plonk, 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 <laughs> plonk, 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 plonk. Like, I'm an expert piano player with this one-third section. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I had three notes that I had to concentrate on, and I was really good at those three notes. My parents put me in lessons when I was maybe five, and I kind of stuck with it. It was hard to be a piano player in middle school, and... High school was a little bit easier, but late elementary school and middle school were a little rough because playing piano back then was seen as inferior to everything else. Really? Interesting. It's like I constantly heard like the Nelson, <laughs> Chuck plays piano. Let's get him, boys. <laughs> it was like, yeah. So I, my friends Versus would be the like, guitar was the guitar like the... The guitar was like the popular one, probably. The guitar was still pretty popular back okay. then. But oh, that's what. Really, I'm going to really date myself, Ben, but video games were just starting to come out. Uh, okay. And so a lot of people were really exploring that side of technology rather than exploring keyboards, which was also really progressing in technology mm. from pianos and the synths and stuff that really started being able for people to purchase and they were affordable and you could have. I, th I think I got my first keyboard like 80. Three eighty four okay. from wow. service service merchandise off <laughs> North Lake off of Memorial Drive. Was your Atlanta. dad mad that you went keyboard versus piano? No, they, was like it was school. cheaper. Mm. Oh, we okay. had a lot of pianos in our house, but they were never in tune, and a keyboard <laughs> was always in tune. And I could put my headphones on and I could play anytime I wanted. Oh, perfect! So I started saxophone in sixth grade. So I was 
part of the band program all the way through high school. But piano was still one of those things that I gravitated towards. So jazz band, I started playing in eighth grade with the high school jazz band. They pulled me over from the middle school to the high school just to sort of go on, go on and get used to playing with them because they were looking for a piano player at the time. And so I spent all my high school career in the band program and playing piano for the musical theater, um, playing piano for local churches. Did it, did learning the saxophone because ones you know you know just here with the hand, I said just here I mean it's difficult with the hands but the other ones you know using your breath breathing did that translate well or did you struggle learning two instruments did you get confused like reading music I don't know if that's even different <laughs> music I don't know that's a dumb question well I never took my mouth and was like I'm gonna play the piano now yeah <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> they are two completely different instruments. Uh, the saxophone, at least in my mind, I could visualize the notes and knew how to work my fingers individually. Because the piano, you know, you had to be oh, really yeah. good at dexterity when it comes to your fingers and and know how to push down certain ones at a time or multiple ones. And so, same thing with the saxophone. All the keys, sometimes you're having to push down three keys or just one or seven. It just depends. So that kind of stuff with my my hand my hand brain coordination. I wouldn't say I, because not necessarily I, but my brain already could tell my fingers what to do and how to do it. Oh, so nice. that was pretty pretty simple. So you were crushing the other sixth graders. Like, I'm <laughs> so good. And you're like, yeah, you know what I mean? I sounded like a, a, a hurt duck for a while. I mean, it was like saxophone is not an easy instrument to play. There's a thing called an armature that you got to work on that in order to play a saxophone, the reed has to sit upon part of your mouth. And so your bottom teeth dig into your gums. Oh. And until you develop that, it hurts, Ben. It's like uh -huh. biting your lip constantly. And you get two indentions or multiple indentions, depending on how crooked your teeth are, into your gums. So when you lay it over eventually, it fits perfectly. It's like building calluses on your fingers when you play guitar. You oh, know, when okay, you start playing, yeah. you're like, oh, this hurts so bad. But until you build that those calluses on it, it's going to continue to hurt. Same thing with saxophone. So it took me a couple of years really to develop that armature where I felt pretty comfortable with it. So I didn't feel like I was really comfortable with a saxophone until I got into high school. Mm, okay. And then I stuck with a saxophone even outside of outside what, of high school. Is that marching band as well? Like Yeah. So you're there Friday night, football? Oh, yeah. I marched tenor sax, Heritage High School in Conyers, Georgia. And um, they put me on tenor sax, but they wanted me to play play brass instruments for marching because they said I was too soft. They were like, saxophones don't make tenor sax doesn't make a lot of noise. I was like, I can make a lot of noise. Yeah, <laughs> let like, me show you the difference between the two of those. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. But I, I continued with saxophone even after high school, not in college studies, but I went back every year to my high school and continued to teach in the marching band program. Oh, that's cool. So they would pull me in to do sectionals or I would teach uh, the marching instruction at the beginning of the year, beginning of the school year. And I'd sit in there with band camp and, and do things like that. But piano was one of those that kind of stuck with me. Saxophone was only a short part of my musical career playing that actual instrument. Mm -hmm. Piano has spanned from my beginning of my relationship with music until now and beyond. Is there a soprano sax? There is. Okay, the reason why I say that is I've seen someone play it, and it was very uniquely looked. Like, it's not... It doesn't look like a classic... Because I think the tender 
looks like a regular alto sax, mm-hmm. but a little slightly different. But then the soprano sax is almost like, I don't even know how she held it. It was just very interesting. So it does look like a clarinet. Yeah, you okay, can it looks a, like a clarinet. A, you can get a soprano sax. The most famous soprano sax player out there is Kenny G, and he plays a straight ah, he G. plays a straight saxophone um, that's you know, straight in line. But they do make a miniature one that literally looks like they took a tenor sax and stuck it in the dryer until it till it shrunk. Yeah, <laughs> and and it does it has a little bit of keys and little bitty mouthpiece and. You play it. I played one of those, the soprano sax that looked like a shrunken down tenor sax oh, really in symphonic band back in high school. That was a lot of fun. But the understanding how the instrument worked, the the any saxophone, but the saxophone worked in marching band, expand my knowledge of orchestration. So is what I studied in college was commercial music. So it's writing jingles for television commercials and movie scores. But a big portion of my college studies was orchestration okay so understanding how instruments work and how they fit into a score or a piece of music and when to use certain instruments in order to have that certain characteristic that certain voice that you're looking for right because there's thousands and thousands of instruments out there in the world that you can use so to understand at least the basics of what an orchestra is playing saxophone really helped me with that because it opened me to a world that I wouldn't have experienced if I played piano because usually marching bands and symphonic bands in high school don't have piano players. They have wind instruments, they have brass instruments, they have percussion, and piano is one of those that they just don't bring in. Mm -hmm. So let's timeline a little bit here. So you're in high school, do the marching band saxophone, still playing keyboard slash piano, uh, on your own time in, in the jazz band, uh, at different musical theater opportunities. And so you're in the point where you're graduating, going to go to college. What made you decide, like, what was your major? What school did you go to? And, like, what made you decide that? Did you go, I have to stick with my musical talent? Or did I, Did you want to pursue a, a business degree? Or I want to be a teacher. I want to be a, what, a lawyer. You know, what... What did you choose and what made you choose that? So originally I was a composition major, which is somebody who just understands how to write music. Oh, and okay. I wanted to study that just like an English major major would study the basics and the and the building blocks of, of the English language or mm-hmm. any language, yeah. any linguistic linguistic um, studies. You know, you would break it down in order to build it up. So composition was something that really interests me because I was beginning to explore writing when I was in high school. Just simple songs. I was experimenting with lyrics. I was trying to be, you know, the next Billy Joel or Elton John, and trying my best to entice the ladies with my <laughs> sweet ladies. my sweet love songs on the piano, which were not <laughs> very good. <laughs> yes, yeah. which were not very good. I'm not a lyricist. I'm not a wordsmith. I speak through the piano. I don't. I have a hard time with words sometimes, which y'all might notice on this podcast. The Transition from high school to college then, I really wanted to study that composition stuff. So I looked in-state, and I had quite a few offers from some schools that would specifically put me into a composition track. And then this school in St. Louis popped up in my multiple universities I was looking at, and it was a very strong liberal arts school that was in southwest St. Louis called Webster University. And at the time, it was pretty high within the top three rankings of musical theater schools. And I had 
spent enough time in musical theater in high school that I knew that was something that interested me. I didn't know whether it was the stage part of it that interested me or playing in the pit mm-hmm. because I wanted to do both. I wanted to be, I wanted to experience the whole actor environment, but I also wanted to be the music director. Um, okay. So I went to a school that had both and ended up deciding after the first couple of months that composition was great, but I really couldn't pursue anything with that beyond like getting a doctorate and teaching at a university. Yeah. It's like a philosophy major, you know, it's like no offense to philosophy majors, but a lot of them probably go back and teach philosophy inside of our psychology, well, psychology, not, but philosophy itself. They probably go back to college in order to be a professor of philosophy. philosophy. So the same thing with, with composition. It was like, where do I go once I do that? So I decided to explore commercial music instead. And at the time there really wasn't, when you say commercial music, do you mean like, Mainstream, or do you mean like actual like TV commercials? Yes, all. Oh, okay. So my commercial music degree explored all of that. It explored a little less of the music business side because that's kind of what commercial music is now: uh, business technology, commercial music technology, and uh, commercial commercial music management. So those things are more into the ins and outs of how to navigate the world of copyrights and the world of manage band management and that kind of stuff. What I was interested in was the composition side of commercial music at the time. And a lot of that was you weren't able to do that in your house. Like now, even the podcast, we're recording on an amazing Mac that, you know, what we're doing here could not have been done when I went to college without thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just for a computer and then a soundboard. Well, it didn't even have a computer at the time. You had to use reel-to-reel. I'm old, Ben. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mentioned no, when it comes yeah. to some of this stuff. So that interests me. The music part of it interests me, and I wanted to be I wanted to be in the next Jingle House is where I wanted to be. I wanted to work in an advertising agency up in Chicago or in New York or in Los Angeles, Atlanta had a scene, but really those were the places I wanted to be the next Band Aid commercial. I wanted to be the next Dodge, depend on or it. The one eight hundred cars for kids. Yes. By the yeah. way, if uh, Chuck Bell, <laughs> yeah. Ben's looking for sponsorship. So if anybody's out oh, there and yeah. wants to, uh, you know, Maybe Chuck can write you a jingle. You know, <laughs> we, we talk about it. <laughs> so I studied music scores was a big part of that. Okay. But commercial music wasn't a full degree. I had to get a degree with an emphasis in commercial music. So I jazz see. studies is what my major, my my, my main, main degree major. was, okay. which was jazz piano or jazz studies. So jazz theory, anything that had to do with jazz music, I was part of um, in that degree program. But my emphasis then my last two years was on commercial music. Did you see like your skill-wise with the piano? Where... Did it? I know you learned a lot probably in college. I'm not saying you didn't, but your skill set, like of being able to really just play with music, where did you see the 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 biggest skyrocket in ability? Was that in college where you just like had a professor and it's like, oh, you've unlocked a new level of me able to play, or is that really like high school or even middle school level of like, well, once I kind of got the basics, I got it. It didn't really come in high school. In college, it took a little bit, and there, I had great professors and I had great teachers, but I ha- kind of had to develop it myself. I spent so much time in the musical theater department, which, in a sense, that is 
controlled improvisation in a sense. Mm, Now in musical theater, you have a written score, but there's a lot of times there's a area that's called vamp and you're just repeating something over and over again while something is happening on the stage in order to get you to the next point. And that vamp can be many instruments. It could be one single instrument. Uh, You can slow the tempo. You can speed up the tempo. For me, I was watching a lot of that and thinking, "This this is a transitional piece from one moment to the next. And it takes your... This is getting pretty deep. It takes your attention away from what's happening on the stage so that something else can take place. So it focuses your attention on one place while something's happening over here that's changing. These are these transitions or the vamps. So it's a scene change basically. So if you've got, let's say we're talking guys and dolls and at the end of it, uh, Sky Masterson is singing um, uh, uh, one of the songs and at the very end of it, they recap that and Sky Masterson is, 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 uh, kissing the girl and the lights kind of dim down and the orchestra starts playing that same song again that keeps you in that moment. And then when the scene comes back up, the orchestra disappears and it's a totally different environment. That immediately spoke to me that in life we have moments that are distractions And if we can keep the focus on one thing while we prepare for the next, it makes the transition between one to the other seamless. So in my mind, I thought, I could apply this to a lot of stuff musically. And it just so ended up that I started working in churches doing this. And so there are moments in our churches where we have an order of worship and we have unintentional silence. It's when we go from the closing of a hymn, the the last chord of a hymn to a prayer. And somebody from the congregation is supposed to speak that prayer. And we end the hymn and the keyboard player stops and then everybody watches from the back of the church, the one person walk all the way forward and they get all the way up on the on the chancel area, the <laughs> pulpit, and they try to rustle their papers and 45 seconds have passed with this unintentional silence that it's like, what is going on? In my brain, I think, how do we keep everybody in this moment of this while we wait for the person to transition? Mm-hmm. And it's then when I started developing my skill set inside the church that I think that's where my my music ability kind of expanded because I started applying a lot of stuff that I learned in college and in high school to real life situations. Is this making sense? No, yeah, this, it's perfect. No, I'm totally tracking. So it's when did you go into churches though? Were, have you always been pretty active in the church playing? 1988 was my first church gig. I was in eighth grade. But you, you, you refer to it as a church gig, yeah. as in like I was paid to play piano, and but that was that your first like like you weren't raised in the church every Sunday. Oh, I was raised in the church, but I was raised in the Catholic church, which had a very set form of doing things. And oh, Catholicism okay. has a very you know the the prayers are usually the same, the responses are the same. If they're sung responses, they're always the same. The hymns they do vary, but you get used to a certain a box that you that you stay inside every week. And so that was kind of the traditional part of me learning music, the learning to play something over and over again and to keep what it is. I was thirsting to try to change it a little bit. So there were some Sundays when I started playing in Catholic masses that I would add a little flavor at the end of something. <laughs> and the priest would look over at me like, like, 
hey now <laughs> what what just happened we've been doing the same thing for hundreds of years and you just added a, a six chord to the end of that <laughs> and it sounded like you were at the middle of the ballpark you know what was that <laughs> it's like oh i'm sorry i guess i messed up uh, so that was a long okay, okay. long answer to your question about where i felt like that transition happened it really was after college that i realized that how do I take everything that I learned to apply it to real life stuff? So, because this is where I think it's interesting is because I, I know you from the church world, not the music world, uh, but I know you from church being a music leader, a worship leader, pastor of sorts. And so, the reason why I ask this question is, you see the the musical side of you developing. You're learning the piano, learning the keyboard. You're learning the skill sets of how to play instruments, but then you're also learning kind of what I just felt like, kind of the mastermind of how do you do a production or a show or a service? How do you kind of see how it all flows, ebbs and flows? And so I'm wondering, that's where I was asking, or okay, we learned that, but where did the church world come from? And how did you talk about the real world and you applied it to the church world when you came back in? But then you, I didn't know you were raised Catholic. So when you went into, after college, and transitioned to playing for churches, did you just go, I'm not going to do Catholic churches because they don't want my skill set, so I chose a different denomination, or where did that come from? There were some opportunities when I got out of college in my hometown that they multiple churches knew my skill set as a music director in musical theater, and my relationship with choirs was pretty strong back then in the in the mid 90s. So I had three different denominations that sought me out in my hometown asking me this guy look at that. Look at that. asking <laughs> me to be a youth choir director. Okay, yeah. in that in the town and the Catholic church they had still hired me to play for children's mass. And so I was doing Sunday morning I was playing at an 8 o'clock children's mass and then I would head over to the Methodist church which is where I eventually um began my full-time music career and I would play for their 11 o'clock service as a piano player in that. And the Catholic church wasn't at a point to pursue me as a full, in a full-time position. The Methodist church was, and I had student loans to pay. So I started attending the Methodist church just because that's where my full-time job was. And to immerse myself inside that body of believers was the right thing at the right time. And they nurtured me in a way that I couldn't have gotten at the Catholic Church. No offense to Catholicism. I, I grew up, it's part of who I am. It's my history with that. But the, the Protestant faith and the Methodist Church gave me an outlet to be creative in some of the music stuff that I was doing that I wouldn't have been able to do inside of the Catholic Church. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. Kind of answered it was, was there a a, a guilt factor of like, well, I was raised Catholic, but now I'm going here. Or was there like a spiritual struggle? Did you feel like, you know, because me- Protestant Methodist is a lot different than, you know, Catholicism. Now that one's better than the other. We're not trying to s- start controversy. But I can imagine there's a little bit of, of I don't know, maybe like a pool or the way that they do things is differently. Like the open table for like communion is a lot different where you like, like this yeah. is not really my thing. Like did that, was there any spiritual struggle or is it just like you know what i get to be creative and play music and you know god's awesome so why not there was a a time of transition for me to understand 
the liturgy that was different in the Methodist mm-hmm. Church as opposed to the Catholic Church, but there are a lot of similarities. That's true. The Apostles' Creed is very similar to the Catholicism, uh, Nicene Creed, Creed that they do. The Great Thanksgiving, they start out with, Lord, the Lord be with you, and also mm-hmm. with you. Lift up your hearts, lift them up to the Lord. That is exactly the same that you do in the Catholic Church. So there are some things that are very similar that made the transition easy into that. Where I got hung up, and it took me a while, is because I, I grew up with this understanding of what a worship service was like inside the Catholic Church, that I was so used to that routine that there were things that really were like spiritual whiplash for me for a while. Mm. It's like the Lord's Prayer. And the Catholic Church, you end at a certain spot, and then the priest has a little commentary, and then you finish, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever and all men. In the Methodist faith, when you say the Lord's Prayer, it's all one thing. There's no commentary in the middle of it. Oh, I and I, I did not realize how, I didn't realize how that affected me until I played one of my first weddings inside of the Methodist church, and the family had asked me to sing the Lord's Prayer, and I was like, "Great, I know the Lord's Prayer, I can do that." And so they wanted the specific version of the Lord's Prayer that's sung at many weddings and funerals, and and I realized during the vows that I had misplaced the sheet music and I thought it was in another part of the church. And so I excused myself during the wedding <laughs> and I knew that I had a couple of moments to run down to see if I could find the sheet music. Well, when I came back, I, could, I couldn't find it anywhere. So I had to make up the Lord's prayer on the spot singing wise, knowing that the Methodist family that, that was having their daughter wed at that moment was looking for that specific version. <laughs> Our father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. I didn't know it very well. So I made it up. <laughs> I made up the Lord's Prayer. Made up the, the singing. I didn't make up the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was the Lord's Prayer. The so I the get same. to the end of it. Um, and let's see. <laughs> Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, that will be done. Or if this is heaven, gifts today are daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We for those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then I stopped. Because in the Catholic Church, that's where you stop, and then the priest does deliver us all from every evil and grant us peace in thy day, and there's a whole little commentary that happens. And then you say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I never did, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I just ended it right there. And was looking around like, this was amazing. People are going to applaud. I'm going to get a, a signed deal for you know this version. So after, after the service, the mother-in-law came up to me and said, the mother of the bride came up and said, Thank you so much for singing the Lord's Prayer. That was a very interesting rendition of it. Did you mean to f- like stop halfway? Were you going to finish it? <laughs> and I was like, I was already pale white. It was like... <laughs> it's like the nicest way to go. Why'd you mess it up? <laughs> yeah, basically that's what it was. It was like, why'd you mess it up? So it was, that was the hardest part was just... I don't want to get into controversy about religion either, but I do believe that God is God. And Mm -hmm. regardless of what pathway you take, God is God. And so it just just took learning. Instead of driving on the expressway, I was driving on the access road. You know, it was like we're going to the same place. Right. It's just there's different ways to get there or different... That's that's very surface theology that I just said there, yeah. but I mean understanding that was it, right. it was not as hard for me to transition between the two as I thought it would have been. Mm-hmm. But music was a huge pull and a huge connection tool for me, 
if I hadn't have had the experience of playing inside the Catholic church for all those years, I wouldn't have felt comfortable playing inside of a Methodist worship service because I understood the importance of music inside worship. It was just the tool of how to use it inside the Methodist church that I had to adjust just to. Mm-hmm. Um, music, as long as you remove the words, you can use it in any denomination. It's the words that get in the way. That's the reason we oh, argue yeah, so much yeah. about, you know, um, you know, whether provenient grace or, you know, or whether, you know, Jesus died because God wanted it, God's anger was fulfilled or was God's love fulfilled. I mean, there's so many different ways we can look at, you know, just the death on the cross, remove the words and just play a, play a melody. It doesn't get in the way. So music was one of those things that I, I could bridge the gap between all denominations because of, because of the music. Music, music is powerful, man. It is a language of its own. Uh, it doesn't even need words. I will say it was kind of funny. So I know I've known you for a while now, but I know you as Chuck. You know I met you in Delonica. You're to me, you're, you're Chuck Bell. And I know you from the Delonica community. That's me. But I was I was doing the. Uh, I'm a licensed local pastor for the United Methodist Church, and I was doing the. They do a licensing school, and you had to watch these videos, and you watch these videos like. 10 to 15 minutes long, and then you have some questions that you have to answer, or you have some assignments you have to write. And one of them was like worship, and I go to click on the video, and you pop up. And I'm like, I think I took a picture of it sent to you. I was like, yeah. why is Chuck Bell on my computer? <laughs> like, what the heck? And you're like leading, talking about, I think it was contemporary worship, modern worship, and what you were talking about is how, you know, we're talking about Catholicism and Methodist, but also modern worship versus traditional worship, and actually, there actually is some connection. And you can bridge the two, and the way you do things can can bring the two together. It's not you don't have to be like one or the other. There's a ways to blend it, and I thought that was just really cool. And so I bring that up because one, you're a celebrity, but two, how did you get to you're playing this church near your hometown? I'm assuming or in your hometown to maybe catapulting to you to a level where the conference or even the district like knew who you were and they want you to make this video that <laughs> that people go out and and where did you kind of start going from piano traditional to keyboard modern oh man these are big questions we might have to do podcast so let me see if i can give you the just a quick overview of this so i've had a lot of great opportunities in my life especially in the last 20 years, things have really progressed at a light speed for me. And there are things that I've been able to do in my music career, in my spiritual career, that most people have to wait until they're further along to do that. In 2012, I was the music director for General Conference, which was one of the largest, yeah, it's the largest <laughs> yeah. gathering of the United Methodist Church. It's the global gathering. 27 worship services over 10 days. And I was the music director for that. It was in Tampa, um, and I was the music director alongside with the worship coordinator, worship director, Marsha McPhee. And she had invited me in to be the director. So we did three years worth of planning for that. And I got catapulted into a global stage because of that. Playing piano, music director, all of that. So the yeah. Methodist faith knew my name after that. And the North Georgia Conference had always known who I was because I worked closely with a few friends who were um, at the conference level. And they pulled me in for SLR events at Camp Glisten, and I was the music director for a lot of other children's and youth retreats that were happening. Yeah, I'm into one that you led. So, yeah, back in the day. So that kind of stuff 
continue to be a very strong part of who I was. So those were all building blocks to get me where I was at that time. And then once I hit the global level, I still did a lot of stuff on the global level, but I'm a homebody. I, I love traveling, but I want to be home with my family. So right. there was something that was very attractive to be able to work in the North Georgia conference and licensed to preach school. There was a friend of mine that became the director overseer of that, of that program at Emory and asked me if I would come in and teach specific, specifically the worship stuff because my friend, Amy Walker, who was over it was, oh, no, Amy, yeah. so Amy and I worked together at Northside United Methodist church for many years. And so we developed a great working relationship through that time. And she, res- she respected the area that I worked in and I highly respected the area that she worked in. And because of that relationship that we built through working together at Northside, when it came time for her to choose somebody who was qualified for teaching at Georgia pastor school, not Georgia, the licensed preach school, she felt it was natural to call me in on that. So I did many years of that. And now she, with the filming of that, that we did during COVID, the filming of all of the license to preach, we actually shared that with other conferences. And so there have been people all over the nation that have watched that video that you watched of me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Specifically as a springboard into their conversations about that. And, you know, those were really difficult conversations to have when they were one sided. Because usually when I'm in a license to preach school, it's very much driven by people asking the questions. But asking me to come up with content and then talk to people about worship is can be difficult sometimes because I don't know your context because worship can worship has to be designed where there's the work of the people, the liturgy that happens inside of your culture, inside of your denomination, inside of your congregation, inside of your community. And that's different everywhere you go. So for me to speak specifically on music inside of worship services is very different when I'm talking to people in North Georgia than would be if I'm talking to people from, New Mexico or Arizona mm-hmm. or oh, California. Yeah, God's still moving, but moves very differently in different con- congregations and even d- in different parts of the world um, and speaks in a very different way. So the music might sound a little bit different. The um, The liturgy might sound different. The way we order things are going to be completely different. So the License to Preach School was trying to give you an overview of all of that. And it was a challenge, especially when I was just talking to a camera. Um, it was a little difficult for that. So that kind of in my worship career, in my worship journey, that 2012 General Conference is really what's what kind of pushed me into the next level. And then working at a church in downtown Atlanta for eight, nine years as a director of contemporary worship with a church that had 3,800 members in it, that kind of was a strong moving point also to get myself on the map. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't get in the ministry to... You know, become famous or become a celebrity. Make a lot. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't do that for that. I. I never asked to be in a position. People asked me to to follow that. So, I felt. I always felt humbled when people asked me to do something like that because I, I continually think, why me? I. Do I have something to share? Do I have something to do? But God continually says, I need you in this position. I need you to do this. I need you to share whatever you have. Uh, with with people, and I just happen to be able to do it on a much um, broader stands, uh, bro- much broader platform than just the local. Right. 
Did you like when you said when you're in Atlanta, you did contemporary? Was there ever like a, a push from a pastor or from a committee for you to learn guitar? Like they couldn't see that contemporary and modern worship couldn't be led otherwise. I feel like oh, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like yeah. the picture is as a guy who can play guitar and sing. You're like, well, I'm a keyboarder who can sing. And was there ever a push? Well, yeah, that's cool, but that's not the front man. We need you to play guitar. Was there ever a push or a nudge? There was the first couple of years, and I led everything from guitar. I had keyboard players, and I played acoustic. Oh, so you can play guitar? Oh yeah, I can play guitar. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought yeah. you could play. Okay, it's because for years I, I moonlit moonlit as a as a guitar player, but I was a keyboard player, but I had to, I had to play guitar in order for me to be in front of everybody because I was told many a times you can't lead worship from behind a piano because there's a barrier between you and the congregation. All they can see is from your head up and worship sometimes is a, is a, is a full body experience, Mm -hmm. you know, especially as a guitar player, you can get the energy, you can feel it. Excuse me. You can, you can see the whole, there's no barriers. Yeah. Except for guitar you're holding. So for my first church job from 95 to 2002, I was almost strictly acoustic guitar. Wow. I played electric on some occasions, but we had a keyboard player, and if we didn't have a keyboard player at the time, then I would play guitar 90% of the time and then piano the rest of the time. And then when I went to Northside UMC... Which is a big church. It's a big church. Um, very loving church. It's probably the church that really continued shaping and molding me into the person I am today. Very thankful for all those people and the, the staff that was there. That church allowed me to explore a little bit more beyond just the acoustic guitar. So they bought a grand piano for me. I was able to choose my own grand piano, and it was great. Nice, yeah. Totally different story, but way off the topic. But the, the piano's name is Grace. Um, she had a name. She was a great piano. She was a kawaii. Was it baby, baby blue? Green. Baby blue. It wasn't baby blue. <laughs> okay. It wasn't baby blue. It was. It was a very, very pretty small, a small baby grand piano. But I played that every Sunday, and I learned how to turn it certain ways where people could see me. I watched a lot of Elton John and Billy Joel, like how they set up the piano yeah. in order to, to interact with the crowd. And so I kind of broke the mold of the piano always being off stage left or stage right. Mm-hmm. You know, we would move it to the center. Sometimes we would put the piano in the center of the room and everybody would be facing in towards the piano with the, you know, so there were many different things we experimented with that. So I didn't feel any restrictions. Nobody told me you can't lead from the piano. You have to be from acoustic guitar. Once I got to Northside, I never heard that, but I know that that's a, that's a common thread right? that's amongst there that, Anybody yeah. when they when they look for worship players, they're like, "Oh, what do you play? Oh, piano? Huh? You play guitar?" <laughs> it's like, uh, I guess it's kind of like living in Delonica. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm not trying to throw shade towards any of the string players here, but as a piano player, it's a tough place to be because yeah. it's Appalachian music's here, and there's such a strong pull for banjos and guitars and mandolins. And so when you say you're a keyboard player, they're like, "Hmm." That's cute. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You're, you're go south to coming. You know, yeah, hey, I got yeah. places you can play down there. They like you in those other parts, you know. Because my my exposure to you, Chuck, is I went to a children's retreat as a leader, not as a child, and I saw you lead worship. And then you also taught a class where you had like 
25 like random instruments i don't know if you know what i'm talking about yeah. but you taught a class like that uh-huh. and i always thought it was cool I'm like all right but i felt like okay he's the camp guy like you're like i was at we're at glisten it's like he's a campy guy he's like oh you know energetic with the kids i was like all right that's just kind of that's his niche that's what he does it wasn't until and i we don't i don't go to the same church that chuck goes to um but when i saw you lead worship last year at new orleans was the first time I've seen like I've been part of the worship service that you've led. I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, besides the the children's thing about six years ago, and the way that you led worship to me blew blew my mind in a sense of, of my expectation of what worship was. Hmm. You know, and I'm I'm kind of the guy of oh, just get the guitar, get three or four modern worship songs, sing them, let us sing and be done. But the way that you taught during worship and what i think is so important about that it's like jesus was called rabbi he was a teacher right and he was teaching the disciples and so we're worshiping god and it's not about us not about what we can get we're worshiping god trying to praise god and you're teaching us different ways to praise god like for example the way that you you talked into like building the prayer into the worship service and you would play and then you had uh, people come in and read scripture like you call people in to read scripture i think it was one of the things you did you also want to say you talked about uh you talked about the song before we actually sang the song which is a real big pet peeve of mine especially when it comes to well not even just students i think adults too there are songs that we don't understand what they're referencing or what it's kind of meaning to so we talk about it. like we talk about I'm trying to think of an example in my head, but I can't really. But there was one. It's like the Waymaker, uh, uh, Ocean Splitter, whatever. All right. Oh, he's talking about Moses. He's talking about leading the people from occupation to the free. And maybe we we can learn about that later. But it's just kind of cool how you kind of set it up. It's like that's the impact. Now let's sing and let's do. And then you say, all right, y'all sing one part and y'all sing another part, and. Worship isn't supposed to be entertaining. I think it's where we have a culture sw- swing to it being entertaining. But worship absolutely needs to be engaging. And you engaged in the worship service in a way that was reverent and respectful, that was relationship building, that was teaching. And, you know, kudos to you and the way that you did it. And I thought I was I was imp- I was very impressed. I was like, oh man, that's it was awesome. And I, in fact, the greatest compliment can be from high school girls because high school girls will let you know their opinion if they don't like something <laughs> very quickly. Middle school boys or middle school girls are like they're quiet, like no, yes. Middle school boys are like I don't know, do I smell? High school girls were like, you know what? That was different. At least the ones from my church, right? Like, that was different than what we expected. But I felt like I learned something. That, that was literally what they said. I said, well, then, then you experienced worship for the first time in a while. Um, and I just want to give you kudos to Thank that you. because I think that's needed Thank in you. worship. That was, I think that has a lot to do with my traditional upbringing of understanding the roots and the, and the importance of doing something that is sacred and, uh, and then growing into the Protestant church of understanding the flexibility that you have. I think a lot of that is is wishing that when I was much younger that somebody had done that for me. 
in some of the worship stuff because I was always confused in worship services, especially in Catholicism. There's so much routine that happens that you get lost really easily if you don't understand the routine. And it took years for me to understand all of that. Years. And it shouldn't have taken years. (laughs) And I'm sure that there were people that explained it to me, but it wasn't explained in a way that I could understand. It wasn't put in terms in the moment for me to be able to do that. So I truly believe that when we get into a worship service, there are some people who believe that they have to speak with the worship leader voice. And now I want you to, you know, it becomes very monotone and they're giving you direction. And it feels very much like you're on the, on the subway train at, at the airport where it's like, you know, now prepare, we're coming up to the baggage claim. You know, it's like, (laughs) it gives you directions, but there's, there's no life to it. It's just, it's just there. So I've always wanted to be in a worship environment where there was an invitation to do stuff, but also that you were part of it. So I call, I call the congregation if I'm if I'm leading worship, I call them the choir because they are an important part of what we do. We just had a worship night at DUMC two weeks ago, maybe 125, 150 people there. And if we had just approached it as a band that was up on a platform and a congregation that was out here, it would have felt like a performance because we had prepared songs. We knew what we were doing with transitions. We could have very quickly excluded who they were. But from the very beginning, I called them a choir and said, this is your part. And we need you to, we need you to fulfill this part that you are part of what we do tonight. It's not about just sitting in your seat and just observing. Now, if that's what God has for you, I'm not going to stand in the way for that. But I think that you have a greater purpose for being here than just to watch. So mm-hmm. you're the choir. Engagement. <laughs> Engagement. And I'm going to teach you your part. And if you can't sing it, speak it. You know, there's many ways that you can you can get into that environment. I think that we get we we feel like when we're up on a platform, and I say we is a very generic term, and when I say we I also mean me too. We get up on a platform in front of a lot of people and we get nervous. And we want to make sure that we say the right things. And we want to make sure that we don't say certain things. And so we'll clam up really quickly. And what we lose then is the relationship building opportunity. I, I never want to say the wrong thing up on the platform. But if I do say something that is a little off topic, maybe during the week somebody in that congregation is going to remember what I said, which takes them back to that worship service. Give God the glory right there. Because already they're thinking about the worship service rather than thinking about something else that happened during the week. You know, it's, it's funny because I preached the last two Sundays at Big Church. And yes, I still call it Big Church. Uh, <laughs> like big, I had really big, big hymnals. Yeah, like yeah, you had yeah. Open them all like this. They're huge. <laughs> Hello, um. <laughs> the blood of Christ. <laughs> it's like a cup as big as a yeah. as a spa. <laughs> Is that what you mean by big church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Lord's uh, Supper, the bread was the six-foot-long piece of bread. I was like, oh, this is huge. Oh, you went to Subway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. They so, had a six-foot-long sub at one time, didn't they? Yeah. Back, back in the day. Uh, and so, anyways, so the first Sunday I preach, I preach on prayer, and we're doing this series about the membership vows. And so we're doing two weeks on prayer, two weeks on presence, uh, two weeks on uh, gifts, service, and witness. And so my two weeks were prayer. The first week, prepared for it, you know, had the sermon, had the title, how we're going to go, transition, and we're also using the lectionary. So I had to somehow tie the scripture versus the topic and how 
to make that mash because it wasn't naturally organic. But I did it. And after I preached, I, I had a lot of people say a lot of nice things. Obviously, it's not about that. But I was like, just for me being nervous, it was like, okay, well, maybe I said something that wasn't just stupid. Well, then the next week, I prepared weeks and weeks on that one. And then I was like, oh, I got to preach again next week. And so the week I did not prepare at all. I was like, oh, God, uh, what's week two of prayer? And then we had a wedding. And it was like rehearsal dinner, wedding. I was a groomsman. And so it was like all this stuff. And so the night before Saturday, like at maybe 11 p.m., I was like, all right, you got to write this sermon. So I go, and I had some ideas floating around in my head. It wasn't just out of nowhere. So I wrote this sermon. I was like, all right, maybe it's good or it's not. I practiced once, and then the next day I went to go give it this sermon. Please, I hope my senior pastor does not listen to this. And so I, I spent months praying about this message. And so I go to deliver it. I feel like I did fine. There was definitely some places I could have like tightened up and maybe made it a little clearer of what I was trying to get across. There's one story where I talked about the first time I really prayed was when my dad went to Iraq, you know, and that's like when I really saw prayer being mm-hmm. uh, purposeful and powerful. And so then I went moved on, and I went afterwards. One of the high school girls was like, "Well, what happened to your dad? You never finished the story. Did he come back?" And I was like, "Oh, well." I didn't finish the story because that wasn't really the purpose of me telling that. It was just like, it was, I was like, well, now do people wonder like what happened to my dad? All right, he made it back, you know. Uh, so there's some things I probably could have tightened up. But the reason I bring that up is at the end of the service, I was I was walking away like, all right, you know, I felt kind of defeated a little bit. And this choir lady, that's the choir choir, not the choir of the church, uh, came up to me, bawling out, crying. And she said that my message just hit her in a way, you know, for whatever reason. And I was like, right. The first week when I was like super prepared, no one cried. I had several conflicts, but no one cried. This person is full. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I think that leaves some room to the Holy Spirit can use the words that you say and hit people in the way that needs to be hit their home and their heart. And really, I don't know, incredible ways that it's not about us necessarily. Like, yeah, yes, be prepared, but also allow some room for the Holy Spirit to to use you and to speak to people. And I think that happens during a worship service. Yeah, and, and as a musician, I have to leave space for that because sometimes in a lot of prayers, we'll say, "Let's pray in silence," and we give them opportunities to be able to respond in the moment. But then, what do you think? The I think I. I did this on the on the mission trip. We talked about the average amount of time that we specifically give for silence inside of a worship service. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the average that this company had been tracking, it's a consulting company out of the Midwest, had been tracking it for many years. I think over 20 years, they'd asked their churches how long they give to silence, and the average was like seven seconds. You know, it's not a lot of time to do anything. Um, it's like when they do pass the peace. It's like, man, the peace be with you. All right, next to the next thing. Like, oh, yeah, it goes really quick. I mean, if your intention, even in the pass of the peace, is to build a relationship, you should make it intentional. Pass the peace and ask how they're doing this morning. We're going to give three minutes to that. You know, it's like be intentional about what you're going to be doing specifically for that. So, if we don't allow the spirit to move within the the services, whether it's through music or through prayer or any of that stuff we might miss some of those opportunities for people to go deeper in what we have to do. So there was probably something that happened inside, I'm just speculating, guessing here, inside your un, your unprepared sermon that you might have had some pauses 
in there to get your thoughts together while you preached mm-hmm. that gave enough time for somebody to digest what you're really saying. And in turn, that hit a much harder impact than it was when you had something that was polished and he spoke right through and he thought it was completely done. It felt more like a, a TED talk yeah. rather than a inspirational, I want you to have a conversation with me. Not necessarily tell me your sentences back and forth, but have a conversation right. with me where you're thinking in your mind and processing what I'm saying, what God has delivered through me, and how are you responding to that? I'm going to give you time to respond. You know, I, I, it's so incredible that you say that because I think I have a natural, uh, uh, it sounds boisterous, but public speaking ability of like engaging in conversation and, and preaching. Not that I'm the smartest person when it comes to preaching, but have a little bit more of an organic, natural style. And so, yeah, I do pause. And then I will also re, uh, re-say, repeat, there you go, repeat certain phrases that I think are really important that I want to emphasize. And there are some preachers that I've seen in, the, in my UMC setting that will just, they'll write a good sermon, but then they read the sermon versus let the, the, the pause, the digest, hear what, hear what the key parts are. Uh, so yeah, I, I maybe I just I didn't intentionally go. I'm gonna pause to let yeah. them I just kind of naturally. I would need to pause right now, so I'm gonna pause, you know, because I got digest. What did I just say? Yeah. Uh, so that, that's cool. I didn't even think about that. That's really intentional about how you design worship services. Well, that even goes back to my jazz studies program. That in jazz music, you learn the silence is just as important as the music you play. Mm-hmm. So, in as a jazz piano player. If I filled my entire solo time up with nonstop notes, not only would I be exhausted, but the listener would be too. There would be no ebb and flow to anything that I do. There wouldn't be a conversation. And the silence is just as much as part of the conversation as the notes are. Wow. So when we're speaking, it's very important for us to realize that too, that there has to be those beats that we do that builds us up to a certain point that then we're able to change and transition to something different um, oh. or maybe just the same thing It's this pauses that really helps that. So it's very possible that that woman, that lady on that, that Sunday was able to feel the beats that you were having and was able to really take to heart what you were saying and how you were saying it in that. And there are people who speak eloquently and can weave together words that allow you to do that. Even while they're speaking, I desire spaces. I desire the silence and stuff. I've got so many things that we could probably do multiple podcasts off of. One of yeah. them is, is Energies of Worship that speaks specifically on that, about the way people respond to certain things tells us a lot about the congregation, about how we feed energy to people and how people receive that energy back. And so a lot of the stuff that I do when I'm up on a, a platform inside of a worship service is I'm constantly reading what the congregation is doing and finding where the majority of the people are and what energy they're giving off and what energy they're receiving. And that doesn't doesn't mean that I'm trying to fulfill the worship service with all of that because I'm hitting the majority. I'm interested in where am I not hitting. If there's people who are thirsting for silence or thirsting for a space just to be, and all I'm doing is playing songs at 120 beats per minute and doing t-shirt cannons and flashing lights at them, yeah. they're going to leave completely exhausted and completely empty. So I have to find ways that I have to have a conversation with all. It's like a, it's a worship buffet, basically, yeah. in a sense. And you know, I don't want to spread too much on one side, but I have to make sure that I'm you know, feeding the garden, watering the garden as much as I can, yeah. and not just on one side of things. So I love it. 
Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I do definitely want you to come back on the podcast because I feel like I have like 27 more questions to ask you uh, as we like kind of like an onion that's layers to this because I'm fascinated by it, intrigued by it. Want to know the almost like the science behind the, the 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 ideas of how to lead worship because I'm in a I'm in a current setting where uh, we're struggling a lot in that and so and also how do you lead worship in the context of the world that we're living in right now and, and the struggle and all those things I want to d- dive into it so will you come back at some point yeah I will and we're, what we haven't even talked about is my sports arena days like yeah, there's the well, a... which was like one of my number one questions <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk yeah. about so we're gonna have to do them part two so you'll have oh. to like tell people yes know, that's that that was from 2002 to 2012. That was a huge part of my life was sports arena stuff, working for the NBA, the NHL, and then later on for Major League Baseball. Um, but that that is a whole nother story in itself. So I'll, I'll I'll label this episode part one. Part one, okay, yeah, I'd love to come so, back. So that, so we'll have so people will be looking for part two. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell us if you want to hear part two. Yeah, subscribe. Uh, well, we always end the episode with a nugget of wisdom. So oh. something that either is from this episode or something that maybe you're living in the season wasn't even mentioned, uh, uh, just a, a thought or an idea, something that uh, it's just something you've been chewing on lately. So the listeners have a little nugget of wisdom that they can also chew on. Uh, and for me, I'll, I'll go first while you're going your your catalog of brain there. Uh, always pass on what you have learned. Uh, that's from Yoda. In case you didn't know, uh, which is my T-shirt. Made Shouldn't you say it like you. Yoda though? Mm-hmm. Always pass on what you have learned. Wouldn't it be pass on what you have learned always? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and well, take number two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's it's funny because I don't get too Star Wars. The honest, you know, they did Star Wars Visions. I don't know if you or uh, Tales of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. It was like this animated thing they did. It's like those shorts and Master Yaddle fights Count Dooku. I don't know if yep. you've watched that yet. I haven't watched it. I just finished Bad Batch. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, love it. Love Bad Batch. Uh, anyways, Yaddle is the same species as Yoda. Right. Has a normal dialect. And so now they're saying that Yoda speaks that way in honor of his master, that his Jedi master, not that he himself naturally speaks that way. And that's very controversial for me. And then we have Gro- Grogu, who you know, speaks as complete. Hasn't said anything yet. Well, Go- we think he said, this is the way. It sounded like he said it when Bo-Katan said it to... Uh, yeah. And he almost went... It's like he's kind of in his almost language. Said it. Yeah. Almost said it. Well, And I think low-key, he's the Mandalorian. Oh. I think, I think because Dave Filioni is doing a movie... That's gonna tie in Ahsoka, Mandalorian, yeah, yeah. Boba Fett, yeah. all those. And yep. he's, it's gonna accumulate, accumulate, uh, accumulate uh, uh, all those three. Yeah, keep going. That was yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I gotta be careful how I Boy say Smith. that. Smith. There he uh, is. All three of those, and it's gonna. I think Grogu is gonna be the Mandalorian, and I think it's gonna be sick. Yeah, that'll be cool. But anyways, so that's my always pass what you've learned. I think it's a really great motto. We're trying to do that with each day with what we said, with our experience, our tradition, our 
our reasoning and our you know our scripture, the way that we do that. That's a little Western quadrilateral there for you. Uh, but always pass on what you've learned. What you got? Okay, I'm going to share three things to long life that my grandmother who lived to 103, 104 shared. Oh, wow. So, so when we asked her what is her secret to you know long life, because there, there are not many among us who live to 103, 104, and she, she pretty much had her wits about her for um, almost the majority of those years. She said uh, three things. Uh, never go to bed mad. Drink a glass of red wine every day. Check. And get as much loving as you possibly can. Just in general. Yeah. However, she was also the woman that when we moved her out of her house on her old uh, Magnavox uh, stereo record player, uh, the last record that was played on it was Songs to Strip By. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. That's my grandmother. Yeah, let's go. Uh, 103? It was 103, 104. It was somewhere around there. there. I can't. I can't. She probably I couldn't was, remember when she was born either. Um, it was a long yeah, time it was, ago. It was 1909 she was born. 1909? Yeah. Wow. So she had, it was a fascinating lady. Yeah. I could no. carry on a whole podcast just some stories of her. So. Jeez. Well, Chuck, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Ben. This was fun. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, we will definitely have him back on another podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe uh, all of our videos on YouTube. We really appreciate it. We're up to 132. Our goal for 2023 is to get to 1,000, so we're going to get to 1,000 subscribers. Oh, and nice. we're, we're also making clips, uh, so like 10 minutes videos from the different podcasts. And one of them has blown up, has like 200 views uh, alone for a 10-minute clip. It's pretty impressive for a channel our size. And so I'm really excited about that. So we'll have some clips definitely from our episode that will go on there. But we're also on Apple and Spotify. Leave us a five-star review if you could. We love you. We appreciate you. And thanks for listening. See you later. Peace.